0: Hello, This is Mike Van Meter, and welcome to the Recovery is Possible podcast, and I want to thank you for joining me. You can reach us at our Facebook site, which is also called Recovery is Possible, or our website, which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. This podcast exists to educate the public about addiction, remove the stigma associated with addiction, and offer help and support to those suffering from addiction. And I also want to bring to you our sponsor... This episode is sponsored by FHE Health, a substance abuse and mental health treatment center specializing in treatment for first responders needs including PTSD, anxiety, and substance use. So take the first steps to a better life today by visiting FHEHealth.com. Okay, so today we are gonna be talking about uh, suicide, suicide awareness, and suicide prevention, and I want to introduce to you guys an old friend of mine, Paul Bertrand, who uh, taught with me when I was an instructor down at the FBI National Academy. We kind of knew each other uh, somewhat. I, I don't know that we were friends at the time. We, we were. We were co-workers. The Academy's kind of a weird place because there's so many different units and so many different instructors, and so I knew of Paul. He knew of me. I started with new agents and analysts and then moved over to the National Academy, and Paul had been over there uh, for quite some time, and Paul will talk about his background, but he was at the academy, left, and then, and then came back, and so we were kind of uh, passing one another in the night, so to speak. But uh, he taught um, leadership issues, and he'll talk about that, and then got into some wellness issues, and his specialty is Uh, on the suicide side of the house, and that's obviously an important subject, something that is directly connected to addiction, which is what we primarily talk about on this program. However, uh, we want to talk about the great work that Paul is doing and uh, the organization Living Works that he is is working with now. So with that, Paul, welcome to the program. Hey, uh,
1: thanks for having me, Mike. Um, It's nice (laughs) to be here with you.
0: Yeah, well he's here in person, so we're sitting down having a cup of coffee in January here in the Washington, D.C. area, so it's really, really cold and dark out. So we figured, hey, we'll just do a podcast, how's that? So uh, let everybody know a little bit about your background, who you are, and what brought you to this type of work. Um, Sure. So uh,
1: I was an FBI agent, um, probably similar to the same years as you were, Um, Mm came in in 1998, and um, I retired in um, 2019 and then came back to the academy as an instructor (coughs) for two more years. And so I just left the FBI Academy in June of 2021. Um, But while I was in the bureau, I was a white collar guy for my investigative career. Um, About 14 years out of my uh, 23, I was um, either a white uh, corporate fraud, securities fraud type investigator, or I was a squad supervisor for Bank and Mortgage Fraud Squad for three years. But then um, following that, that was all in Los Angeles field office. Then I, I came over to the FBI Academy and um, had a couple of different jobs at the Academy, but my, uh, the, the most time I spent was teaching National Academy, and that's where I was teaching um, leadership for law enforcement and uh, leadership, ethics, and decision making. And then um, I left the academy in 2013 and went out to Washington field office back to investigating corporate fraud. Mm-hmm. And um, then in 2015, that's when I, I started to get into the world of mental health and suicide. Um, I, I had become an employee assistance program uh, peer in the Washington field office. And I, I came into the bureau with a master's degree in counseling that mm. I'd gotten uh, back in 1996. And um, of course I, I had never practiced as a counselor, but but had the degree. And um, so I started being a peer and then a job opening came up where they were looking for a regional program manager for the employee assistance program to um, oversee the employee assistance program for the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic. Part of the country and actually at that time it was just for the northeast but i applied for that job and i ended up getting that job and and so once i started dealing with um employee assistance full time then then my job became to um to oversee and to promote the mental health and wellness of fbi employees and um it was during that time it, in April of 2016, I went to a class uh, called ASSIST. It's Applied Suicide Intervention Skills Training. Mm-hmm. And that's a class that's made by Living Works. And, and um, one of our employee assistance counselors in the New York field office had actually invited um, some instructors from Living Works to come and teach ASSIST at the New York field office. And ASSIST is a two-day, 16-hour suicide intervention program that teaches people how to have conversations with people who are thinking of suicide, how to identify who those people might be, how to start the conversation, how to build a relationship, how to ask them about suicide, how to listen to their story, how to actually reach a turning point with them that that you might consider a point in the conversation to give them you know, hope to be willing to um, uh, give life a chance and and focus on becoming and staying safe for now, and then how to actually put together a safety plan with people that are thinking of suicide, to to help keep them safe and then to actually put that plan into action. So I loved that class. Like when I took the class, it 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 was probably definitely without a doubt the most professional class that i'd ever been a part of in in 20 years in law enforcement and and eight years in the navy before that um and so i decided it would be good to bring that to the entire fbi not just uh, the new york field office so for about the next two years i i spent trying to convince uh the powers that be within the fbi to actually fund a program that would allow us to train assist instructors in the FBI and, and to get out to all the field offices and teach suicide intervention uh, throughout the FBI. And, and so we ended up doing that. Um, I ended up getting about 16 assist trainers trained. And we ended up teaching approximately 35 assist workshops a year that would train approximately a thousand uh fbi employees a year throughout the country in suicide intervention Mm. then once assist was rolling um you know uh, assist is a heavy duty course and of course it's it's hard to find two days for training you know for a lot of people especially fbi agents it, it did happen where we'd show up at field offices to teach, and then there might be a kidnapping or something in the office that day. And all of a sudden, if there were supposed to be 30 people in the class, maybe seven would show up because the other 23 were all called out for whatever the operation was. And and so Live and Works also makes an, another program, uh, suicide prevention program called Safe Talk, which is only half a day, mm-hmm. and and In that case, it still teaches folks how to build that connection with someone who might be thinking of suicide, how to tell if somebody might be thinking of suicide, how to ask them about suicide, how to have the conversation with them, and then how to connect them with resources that can keep them safe. Mm -hmm. And so we ended up training 10 uh, Safe Talk instructors uh, or Safe Talk trainers as well, and and. Now, to this day, um, there's currently uh, still, I believe, 15 assistant uh, trainers in the FBI and 20 Safe Talk trainers. And they still have programs where they're offering both assist and um, Safe Talk training to people throughout the FBI. Mm. So, um, so that's how I became involved in this world. And then when I left the FBI in June, I, I came to work for... Um, Living Works Education, and uh, and currently my job is a, a military community development consultant, and so I work with um, my boss and my boss's boss, and we essentially help military installations throughout the world um, create networks of safety and suicide prevention training programs on their military installations.
0: Well. Did you have now? You you trained as a counselor, um, yes. Going into this, so did you just kind of fall into this this field with uh, suicide prevention, or what? What kind of what, what? What prompted you to have an interest in that?
1: Sure. So, um, it, it it's interesting that sometimes we don't realize what's all around us all the time, right? And and I would say, um. Thoughts of suicide are, are, are one of those things that that are all around us all the time, and yet it's it's never talked about. Um, right. It's never acknowledged. It's never publicized. And um, and once I got into the world where where mental health and and well being was my job, I I be, it became very clear that a lot of people in the FBI. Um, were having thoughts of suicide, uh, among other Mm -hmm. mental health type problems. And that a lot of the people within the employee assistance program, um, you know, in that program at the time, there was about 16 licensed mental health clinicians um, in the FBI, including a psychiatrist. And it it was a peer based program. And so there was approximately five to 600 Peers scattered throughout all the 56 field offices and and headquarters and across the country and and a lot of those folks were talking to people who who had thoughts of suicide among other things and so i guess it's when i got into the work that i realized that okay this is all over the place and you know awareness is one thing um and when you hear about suicide prevention and law enforcement, a lot of it focuses on awareness. But I think if you were to talk to any cops today, they're aware of suicide. Oh, yeah. And yeah. and they're aware that the problem's out there. And they're aware that it probably would be better to talk to someone who can help them if they're having thoughts of suicide. The, the trouble with that is that awareness isn't skills and and people don't kill themselves in the counselor's office people kill themselves where they are in the communities that they're in at the time that could be the workplace it could be the home it could be wherever the organization is but but people who are are suicidal and are thinking of killing themselves have relationships with people Mm -hmm. and they talk to people and they go to work and they and and it's those people that, if they have the right training, would understand w- what to notice, what to look for, and and more importantly, how to have that conversation with somebody that they think is suicidal. Um, more often than not, people don't want to have that conversation yeah um, they they either, might not know the person's even talking about suicide or if they do know the person's talking about suicide um, I ask people all the time do you have any drama in your family (laughs) no (laughs) you know amongst all your relatives (laughs) uh, you know around the Thanksgiving table. might
0: be easier to ask who doesn't have drama (laughs) exactly
1: and and yet sometimes when we become overly familiar with people we might tend to dismiss um, uh, thoughts of suicide because it doesn't fit a stereotype we have in our head of -hmm. of what a suicidal person might look like. Um, Sometimes you might even hear people say things like, Oh, don't worry about that. They're just overly dramatic. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, don't worry about them. They say stuff like that all the time. You know, Mm -hmm. but yet I know, I know of people who've been walking around the office for 15 years, talking about suicide, before they actually went through with it. Right? It's crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, And then of course, there's the discomfort of the whole thing. I mean, we're taught to be polite and mm-hmm. not to be nosy. And and so you can imagine I, I mean we're even taught like keep business business, don't talk about the personal stuff. Right. And and so you can imagine how much courage it takes to work up to having a conversation with somebody you think might be suicidal. And and yet people aren't trained how to do that what would you so so what ends up happening is that people avoid the conversation um there there used to be a joke like walking through fbi headquarters that you know every single person you pass in the hallways doesn't make eye contact they just look at the floor or look at the wall i don't know that that's a joke you know (laughs) there's a lot of truth to that (laughs) yeah absolutely and and it's that thing like nobody wants to get involved nobody wants to see how anybody else is doing they just want to get to their desk do their job and go home right and and i mean to really have fun i did this whole bunch of times where i just look every single person in the eye and tell them hi how are you doing and, and and it's crazy just to watch the reactions but that avoidance it is real right and and so what happens is when people hear about a suicide training program, a suicide prevention training program, they just automatically assume that it's to try to identify who is suicidal. They'll even say things to me like, oh, do you mean like like you're going to train everybody so that if people need help, they'll reach out for help? And that's when I try to tell them, no, I want to teach you how to have a conversation with somebody that's thinking of suicide and keep them alive, keep them safe. Mm-hmm. And and the goal in these programs is similar that w- we've trained millions of people throughout the entire United States now not only how to do CPR and now they even have that chest only CPR and all the mm-hmm. rest it keeps evolving but now we also have AEDs everywhere and, and so the chances are, if you're in a public place or a park or a building or wherever, there's not only an AED nearby, but there's somebody that's been trained in CPR. It's even a requirement um, for school teachers. Yeah. Right. And and so along the same lines, the, the Red Cross and American Heart Association have been wildly successful in in keeping people alive by doing these training programs with suicide, if we could get enough people to, to recognize when someone's thinking of suicide and actually have the skills to have the conversation with them, then they can connect them to those resources. Um, but, but that's, that's really a difference there between awareness and, and skills training.
0: So do you, are you seeing an, an increase in the problem? What, what's the lay of the land right now? I mean, we've just gone through certainly a year, year and a half now of lockdowns and a couple of <laughs> years of turmoil. Um, have things gotten worse over time, over the last couple of years? Because I know in the addiction world, and if you listen to this podcast, you've heard me talk about the in the, the addiction realm, it, it's really gotten bad. And it's something that the, the shame is that COVID is bad as it is. There are more people that are dying from overdoses. There's um, uh, more people are trying, needing to get into treatment, can't get into treatment. There's waiting lines uh, to get in, and it's become a real problem in the Mm -hmm. on the addiction side of the house. But how how about with suicide?
1: Sure. So the suicide numbers go up over time. Um, I believe it was 2019, and and I don't have these numbers in front of me, but roughly 48,000 people in the United States, um, killed themselves, you know, last year, either 2020, 2019. And, um, and a decade ago, the number was still under 40,000. And, and, you know, back in the early two thousands, you know, of course the number was significantly less than that. And so the problem continues to climb. Um, I mean, not a lot of people know this, but but in the United States, about 60% of um, all the suicides are, of course, gun deaths. And uh, of the number of gun deaths in the United States, it, it's something like if there's 38,000 gun deaths, which I think is close to right, mm-hmm. about twenty-four to 25,000 of them will be suicides. Um, it, it's, it, And so... Yeah, we're we're in a situation right now too, where some articles are coming out now showing, uh, in the military, numbers are still like rising every year as well. Wow. Um, uh, military and veteran suicide is 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 going up, and and of course there are examples where people are putting training programs in place and and surrounding enough. Um, and and during those times, you see the suicide rates go down, but of course, once all those people move on or once the training stops, then we get back to a place where the numbers start rising again.
0: Right, right. Well, it's 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 perplexing, and I do know that our response to COVID—you um, could argue that the response is necessary, but it. Uh, On the same side of that coin, it's also been devastating to this world. Mental health, Mm -hmm. uh, addiction, suicide, all of that. And it all goes together. Um, We've really, really uh, missed the mark in in dealing with this. And the unfortunate part is that there's not a national narrative uh, dealing with this. And a lot of it has to do with the stigma. And I've talked about this before in this podcast, that one of the problems is that people that are in recovery, I was talking about the recovery side of the house, are unwittingly trained to not ever talk about recovery, which means that the people that need help are never meeting the people that can talk about how to get help. And that's, so that come in my world, but in your world, that's the same thing, isn't it? So people, we, and you talked about people being uncomfortable. This is a difficult conversation to have, but it's a necessary conversation. And one of the things that we need to do and we try to do in this program is destigmatize this to where, we, this can be a conversation that we have and we should have
1: yeah I, I kind of see it as an issue of control Mike um, where I, I've talked to an awful lot of alcoholics and and an awful lot of suicidal people and mm-hmm. um, and it, it's very similar with both when whenever I've spoken to someone thinking of suicide or um, who's an addict of, of one form or another, they're, they're all, by nature, very slow to get around to talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a definite l- real sense of trust that has to be established there. and And where it seems to center around is that people seem to have the belief that as soon as they admit they're an alcoholic or as soon as they admit that they're uh, thinking of suicide, they think they're going to lose control of everything in their life.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like they think they're going to lose their job. They think they're going to end up in a hospital. They think they're going to, you know, basically be in all of these programs they have no control over, and, and all of this stuff is going to happen. And, and not that some people won't end up in those situations, some will but in my experience that's so few and so far between that it's not even worth mentioning mm-hmm. and 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 almost universally with everyone i've talked to i mean and i can i can think of a lot of people they're really pleasantly surprised um, when they start to get into recovery mm-hmm. or or when they start to get help um, for for the thoughts of suicide and whatever issues they may be having help with of kind of like um, how easy and how nice and, and how helpful it is. And and then universally they start to think like, man, I should have done this a long time ago. Yeah. I, I, I shouldn't have struggled for so long being scared of what was going to happen if I got help um, versus getting help. You know?
0: you know, it's interesting that you say that because I hear this at meetings, um, 12-step meetings all the time. You know, people will get up and they'll talk about, Whatever length of sobriety they have. And it's a very common saying, I wish I had done this so much earlier, mm-hmm. so much earlier. And there is just something about the fear. And I think a lot of it is just the ignorance and not understanding what, what recovery is all about. And I say recovery broadly because what you're talking about is a form of, of recovery too, and dealing with whatever issue you have, depression, um, you know, and, and let's face it, in the addiction world, that, that goes at it you, you I've never gone to a meeting and heard heard somebody say you know the reason why I was drinking myself to death is because I was my life was going so well and I was so happy I got the best wife in the world my kids are awesome I got a great job and so I thought I'd, I'd drink myself to death it doesn't work that way it it, mm-hmm. it is resentments it's unhappiness it's depression it's those types of things that's what drives us to drink a drug but depression is what we're dealing with here and we just don't want to push in that direction because of the unknown and really not, you know, people aren't out front just talking about the joy of life and what you can do. We say in recovery that you give up one thing so you can have everything in an addiction. You give up everything so you can do the one thing. And it's the same thing here. This is the kinder, uh, kinder, gentler, softer way. We're always looking for that in life, you know, trying to find the easier way to do things. This actually is the easier way to do things. And there is help that's, that's out there. And, and if you're listening to this podcast, particularly this episode, there's probably a reason why you've stuck along um this long to, to listen to us talk about this. It's because either you or someone you know is struggling with this issue and there are so many avenues to get help so many different resources and you just have to, to reach out. And it's not a sign of weakness. Yeah, I know in recovery step one of AA is I'm powerless over alcohol. My life has become unmanageable. Powerlessness, unmanageability. Unmanageability we understand, powerlessness, particularly in our profession, whether it be military or law enforcement, uh, powerlessness is not something that that we grasp or we will consent to. I'm not powerless over anything. But when it comes to my addiction or my depression, I am powerless over that in, in the effects that it has on me, right? And the, the weird thing in addiction is, it's when you surrender to it and just give into it and just accept it for what it is, that's mm-hmm. actually where the power comes from. Because then you get better. You know, I'll tell you what. I got victory over alcohol when I stopped fighting it, which is weird. It's, it's, it's not intuitive. But that was where the beginning... As long as I fought it, it was it was beating me. Mm-hmm. It's when I when I just accepted it and surrendered to it. Then, and only then, could I listen, right, to right. do that. Is it the people, same with you? Um,
1: I, I don't think people realize until they're faced with a decision that's that hard... Um, how much courage it takes to um, to say that you need help with something, and like there's there's um, Brene Brown. I'm sure you guys have all heard of her. Um, talks a lot about courage and vulnerability, and the the amount of courage that it takes to put yourself out there and show any weakness whatsoever, mm-hmm. and just put yourself out there for mm-hmm. whatever might come my way is amazing. And and so it, there's definitely not a sign of weakness, but, but building up the courage necessary to actually agree that, yes, I need help. Um, and I'll, I'll give you an example. A lot of um, folks I've met have been wildly successful in their careers. And they have successful families and kids who've gone on to great schools and done great things. And mm-hmm. and by all measures, they're successful. But But those people, maybe nobody else knows of the different abuses they suffered when they were kids, for instance. Mm-hmm. Could have been sexual abuse, physical abuse, traumas, whatever going on in that house when they're growing up. And no matter how... No matter how successful they are, that unresolved trauma stays with them, and um, and they find themselves suicidal every day in their 40s and 50s, approaching retirement, right? And and this is this is common in the FBI, as it is other places, um, and and a lot of those folks will be self-medicating. And self-medicating for years mm-hmm. because it's way 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 easier and less scary for them to go someplace by themselves and self-medicate or self-medicate with a few trusted friends than it is to actually face the demons you know that are left over from the the past traumas right mm-hmm. and 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 so when i have relationships with people and the people I know have relationships with people. There's really a lot to accept in them where they are <laughs> and understanding, like I'll start off. I, I know on the first call with someone that alcohol is a big part of the problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, but, but I'll, I'll come across with a question like, Hey Mike, so you know, this and that and this and that and this and that. I got your story, right? And I just noticed in there that alcohol came up. Let me just ask you. You know, is alcohol something we need to worry about it or was this just a one off you had a drink or two and got popped for the DUI? Mm-hmm. And and without fail. It's oh no, alcohol's not the problem. You know, it's it's just one or two got the DUI. Okay, no worries. But we'll continue talking over time. <laughs> And and all of the sudden the alcohol is coming up a little more. And and what's interesting is almost without fail, within a few months, then it's hey Paul, I really need rehab. What do we have to do? Yeah. Right? And but it's but I've found through the going slow building trust approach is then people might actually ask for help rather than being Badgered into it, and and in in like the EAP world, I found that people just won't come see you again if you badger them into it. It's all about trust and and relationships. Having that
0: relationship, yep.
1: You know, yeah. Um, so similar with suicide. Um, somebody has to know that their whole world's not going to end if they mention suicide before they mention suicide, and so sometimes you got to talk to somebody for a while have a relationship with them and then you'll hear things like yeah I, all I think about is suicide every day okay good so now we're there so now we can deal with that so let's start talking about how all the ways we're going to keep you alive because when someone's willing to talk about suicide that's nice it shows just from that that there's they're, uh, they want to live Mm-hmm. And in fact, I say this all the time. I've never met anybody that wants to die. I've only met people who want the, the pain to end. I've only met people who want the, the messed up situation they're in to end. Of, and they can't figure out how to make that end without ending themselves. Right. So, so it's this conundrum over, do I take myself out to get rid of the pain? And But of course if they do if they do complete a suicide then they never get to live without the pain it's weird it's like a it's like a victory you can never have
0: (laughs) yeah and i think it's important to get to the root cause of why 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 are we feeling this way um is it is it is it a chemical imbalance are there things that we can do to correct that is it a life situation? Is it a momentary? Maybe you're going through a divorce. Maybe you went through a, a job loss. Maybe there's something, some tragedy that happened. And, and talking about that. And there's different ways that we can get there. Uh, substance abuse is another way that we can get here. I always, alcohol, for example, I always talk about, you know, alcohol is a depressant. And a lot of people, when you point this out to them, it, it seems obvious. It seems intuitive, but it's really not when you're in the mix of it. Um, we get very depressed. So we're very upset. So what do we do? We drink. What is alcohol? It's a depressant. Right. And then, and I've talked about this before on this podcast that when you drink alcoholically, um, you're not absorbing certain vitamins and minerals, B's, uh, the B series of vitamins, 1, 3, 6, and 12. Uh, serotonin levels drop because you're not sleeping properly. GABA levels drop. All these different things drop. And then, and so you're compounding the depression issue. You had depression, and now you're making your depression worse because you're putting a depressant in, and then you're not. Uh, Getting in and retaining the vitamins and minerals that would help you uh, get out of this rut. And it's just this self-fulfilling prophecy. And it's amazing, you know, how many people um, come into a treatment center, for example. Most people I interview when they come into the treatment facility that I'm I'm working at right now, um, suicidal ideations are a part of their story. Mm -hmm. It's almost a given when people come in. If but it's you, amazing when you get people sober for a period of time, how that then starts moving, moving off of the table. Yeah, there's a lot so, of
1: similarity there with what you're saying. If you, uh, there, there are lots of reasons people consider suicide. Mm-hmm. Of course, um, loss is a very, a very common one. It, it, it can be loss of relationship, loss of financial security loss of friendships, loss of, you know, perceived future, like mm-hmm. failure, loss of opportunity, whatever. And, and I talked earlier about like um, self-medicating through mm-hmm. alcohol or drugs. And what's interesting is that the suicidal thought isn't the root of the problem, as I would say that the, the abuse of alcohol or drugs isn't the root of the problem. Right. Um, it's, it's
0: a symptom. Right. yeah.
1: But when you deal with that symptom, then people become clear headed to face what the issues are underlying. And and so what I mean is when someone's not self-medicating every night, all of the sudden they're sober <laughs> and and then they can start actually putting some different effort into making the bad feelings go away. <laughs> You know whatever that will be. Um, similar thing with the the suicide intervention is our, our goal is to keep people safe for for now, right? Because we we don't want people to kill themselves now. Be, because if they don't kill themselves now, then they can put the rest of that plan in motion to to deal with those those underlying issues, resolve those feelings of. Of loss, mm-hmm. resolve that uh, uh, um, attraction toward death. Um, resolve the feeling of being alone. Maybe actually, if 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 we can put a plan in motion, you can turn thoughts of the past and everything that hasn't worked out so far into thoughts of the future and all all the things to be hopeful for. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same thing with. Um, with those feelings of being alone. I've never met anybody thinking of suicide when I started um, talking to them who didn't feel alone. And and I think very similar with um, addictions. People, by the very thought of addiction, almost make themselves alone. <laughs> like mm-hmm. they isolate themselves. Well, addiction right? and isolation go together. And, yeah, yeah, and, and so th- the goal is to... To get them to the point, of course, of feeling supported, and so, and and so in feeling hopeful and supported and focusing on the future, you know, and focusing on life-giving activities. That's that's what pulls somebody out of they don't they're not suicidal anymore, right? If they're not focused on death, past and alone. Really, quite similar in the um, addiction world not focused on on me completely numbing myself to death. <laughs> Instead, focused on, okay, what can I do to fix this and move forward and get things better? Because clearly this isn't working for me.
0: Yeah. And let's make no mistake about it. Addiction, if you're listening to this podcast and you are suffering from addiction, um, there's a progression. Addiction is a progressive disease. Uh, big book of Alcoholics Anonymous talks about jails, institutions, death. That's what lead to it's a slow form of suicide addiction is a slow form of suicide and so the same principles apply and what do we do you talked about isolation first thing we do is to get you out of isolation and put you into community that's what the fellowship is all about that's why there's this constant emphasis of meetings togetherness group sponsors hope you know we we talk about experience strength and hope experience strength and then the hope for the future, we're always looking towards, you know, being in the present where we are now with the idea that we're going to carry this forward into a better life. Yeah. The future. Do you know right? I love um, a, a little saying, which is
1: that the only thing in our entire lives we can control is what we're doing right now. That's right. That we, we literally never know if if we're going to have tomorrow. And we obviously can't. Change. We don't know if
0: we're going to be alive at eight o'clock tonight. Right? We we, we really don't. You would think, well, that's kind of morbid. And, no, but really, we don't know.
1: And if I think if people would put more thought into that, what am I doing right now? We we would have a lot less issues than we have. Um, and you know, you brought up a great a great thing. I, I've been a student of uh, positive psychology and well being for the last couple of years, and. And uh, I I love the analogy of the number line that I've just gotten out of some of my training and and mainstream psychology and that um, working on the on the principle that they want to remove misery. Like if we can just remove depression from people, if we can remove anxiety, if we can remove the bad stuff, people will be happy. And, and, And of course, that's not true. If you look at that number line, maybe somebody's suicidal or addicted, you might consider them at their bottom down there around that minus 10 if we remove that stuff from them they're just at zero Mm -hmm. and and what we're left with is emptiness of course Mm. but all of that stuff that you were talking about um those positive relationships right having positive relationships is a big part of well-being um i mean obviously i'm going to kind of quote a little bit of perma here which is um the University of Pennsylvania and Martin Seligman's theory. But but that whole idea that well-being takes work and well-being takes action. And if you don't do the work to have well-being, you'll have emptiness. Mm-hmm. Just as if you remove that depression and anxiety, you have emptiness. Nobody wants to be empty. Everybody wants to be on that plus 10 And so the way to do that is to actually put the work in to go out there and develop positive relationships and follow through with it to actually find activities and conversations and hobbies and other things that that we love doing so much that we lose track of time. We forget to go to the bathroom. We forget to eat. Um, If you think in your life of what it is that you used to do, what for fun, what you used to enjoy. Everybody has that long list of Eustas, right? <laughs> the uses you've um, heard of Kevin Gilmartin speak of this yeah quite a bit, is those are the things that give us engagement that we that we that we lose track of time doing. But it takes effort to actually do those things and not go sit on the sofa, right? Um, same thing with finding meaning and purpose having meaning and purpose actually translates to belonging to and serving something bigger than ourselves
0: hence the in in my world the higher power the concept yeah. of a higher power higher power doesn't have to be god it can be god mm-hmm. but it can be a purpose it can be a movement it can be something greater than you a yeah. purpose greater than you it's um
1: not um and not to be left out as well is accomplishment it actually pays huge dividends to accomplish, accomplish something worthwhile once in a while. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, it, it, it's funny. I mean, not to toot my own horn, but last year I decided walking would be my thing. <laughs> and um, and it, it's kind of funny. I yeah. ended up walking 3,100 miles last year. That's a, like like over 1,005 k's. And what's interesting of it is it, it takes effort. But but along with all of that, positive emotion, uh, positive relationships, engagement, accomplishment, meaning, purpose, once you put in the effort to do that, it's not easy. But then you own it and nobody can take it away. Mm-hmm. And, and good feelings follow that.
0: You know, I noticed, too, that, you know, we're coming out of the holiday season. In fact, uh, just for future reference sake, you know, today is, in fact, uh, Martin Luther uh, King Jr. Day. Federal holiday, which for us marks really the end of the, the holiday season, right. And I have just found how like how discombobulated I have felt over the last, month or so because it's during the holidays and like my schedule and and, and you may, Paul, you may be feeling the same way. It just feels like I don't have a schedule. I don't have, you know, I feel like I'm just kind of going day to day, you know, spending time with family. That's, that's phenomenal. There's things that in a way it's kind of nice because my, my schedule is so packed all the time. It's kind of nice not to have any of that, but after a while I just start losing you know, momentum. And I feel like I'm just kind of sloshing through each day. And I've noticed that like starting today, getting up and having that schedule and having that list of things to do. And this is like what you're talking about accomplishment, because it doesn't have to be a degree. It doesn't have to be walking through 3,100 miles or doing that Ironman triathlon. It can be, you know, if if that's your thing, then do it. But sometimes, particularly in early recovery and early um, stages of getting help with uh, maybe some mental health issues or you know, suicidal ideations, things like that. There's something about just getting up and having a schedule and saying, here's my list of things. And they could be simple things. You know what? Maybe in the beginning, like in the treatment center I work at, for a lot of the patients that come in, they've not had a schedule in a very, very long time that they've had to adhere to. So they're up very early in the morning. You make your bed, you get up, you go to breakfast, you go get your medications, um, well, maybe you'll go over to a prayer service, meditation service where maybe you'll go to a lecture, then we have our small group, then we have lunch and, and just having that lit. There's something about just kind of organizing yourself and having small victories mm-hmm. that starts to lift you out of that depression. Because it just seems like, um, uh, the people that I have met that have really become depressed and start thinking about ending that misery. It's like they, they, you're like a boat without a rudder anymore you're just kind of flailing through life in like um direction has stopped do you, mm-hmm. do you think that that helps or am I reading I think, too much um, into that
1: no I think you're hitting on something really important there um and you talk about it if you give up uh, addiction you got a lot of extra time <laughs> um, you gotta replace it with something oh my yeah. gosh no I, I, I and I went through that so I can <laughs> relate to that I yeah. know people yeah. who've been addicted and and and, and they're usually just such a disappointment all the time by not showing up for everything that they were supposed to to the point where it gets to nobody counts on them for anything anymore right? because they know they're just going to be unreliable and not show up. And, and, and that goes to, I mean, family vacations. It yeah. goes to holidays. It goes to anything. And, and so I think just like anything, when you get out of practice – doing something like being accountable. Um, sometimes it takes a little practice to get back into practice mm-hmm. of doing something like being accountable. And it, and it goes right back to what I said just a minute ago. You can control what you're doing at this minute. And and so I think rest and relaxation is really important. And it, it just ought to be conscious that at this moment I want to be resting and relaxing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? But but the rest of the time, I think it's pretty easy to just ask ourselves: Is what I'm doing right now productive, mm-hmm. even if it's rest and relaxation, or is it unproductive? A- am I adding to the quality of my life, or am I taking away from the quality of my mm-hmm. life right now?
0: You're either working towards help, yep, or you're working away from it. Just like you were, you know, in recovery, we're always talking about: you're either work- working away from a drink or you're working towards a drink, even our physical health, you know, every single day that goes by, you're either getting healthier or you're, or you're not, but we, we're never, one thing we do know is you're never in um, the, the same state every single day, it, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, we're either working to get better or we're not. We're working in the other direction. And the question is every single day you get up, w- w- are you, where's the balance in that scale that you talked about? Mind the plus side, the negative side, or am I at zero? But you're right. you're never stagnant. Stagnant. No, and it's and we have we want to have more days over here on the positive side, and that's mm-hmm. early on. That's the goal, and it may not be much of a positive, but we want to have it over there, and we want to be trending that. Well, that way.
1: whole time factor too. I, I mean, I mean, if we all put as much time into, you know, basketball as 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 a bunch of people put into addiction. I mean, we'd all be Michael Jordan. (laughs) Like, like it's it it is it is interesting. Um, I I think. I think and I just like try to tell people that that, you know, once once we get over the the hump of addiction, now we got to fill the rest of that time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Whatever it is, you're
0: not done unless you're you're working. And you will find that it does open up so many different doors. And I, and I like the idea of, you know, finding something to occupy your time and particularly something that makes time goes by to go by and you're not um, even aware of it. I, I know for me now, and how we do this will manifest itself depending on the person, their interests, their physical abilities, things like that. When I first got into recovery, I got into running, cycling, uh, triathlons, things like that not good at it. You know, I, I used to joke all the time that, um, um, if you and I sign up for a race, the nice thing is you won't be in last place. That's always the nice thing about it. But there was something about running and cycling to me. Hey, it got me outside. So it's outdoors, you know, getting sunlight, which is a, a good thing, physical activity, uh, a lot of evidence that, um, having oxygen, increasing your oxygen uptake really helps your brain, your brain development. That's true in addiction recovery. And I'm sure it's true with uh, depression as well. Um, endorphins, you know, all, all of those different, the feel good natural drugs go into your body. But the other thing too, is I found that, uh, if I was on a heavy run or particularly cycling, you have to really pay attention to what you're doing. And that forced me, forced me to be in the moment. If you're cycling, particularly at any, any speed or any technical ability, I mean, you, for long periods of time, I had to really focus on what I was doing. But the nice thing is what are the other issues going on in my world that were leading towards me wanting to go to a drink, I really didn't have time to think about that because I had to pay attention that it forced me to be in the moment that you were discussing. Yeah. Now, again, it could be music. It could be whatever you're into with those types of things that just kind of take you and force you to be in the moment are productive, I think. Yep.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Absolutely. Um. It's, it's incredible. Like, you know, when you think through the whole story, the fear of the unknown, I, I think, paralyzes people more than anything else that there is. Um, it, it's funny, in the FBI, uh, facing um, an internal investigation mm-hmm. would probably be like the scariest thing that ever happened to employees. And, and when we had to deal with, you know, employees going through internal investigation and facing OPR and um, suspension, these people would be distant at work, they become completely unproductive. Um, Mm -hmm. They're distant at home, their spouses think they're cheating on them because they're always distant, they're not in the conversation. Uh, They lose weight. You know, they'd, they'd lose 10, 15 pounds during the months of the investigation. Um, they get sick all the time. Um, it, and and it all deals with the fear of the unknown. And I'd be talking to people and I'm like, oh, okay, what are you charged with? And they might tell me, like, oh, losing my gun, you know, and I'm like, okay, did you do it on purpose? No. Okay, well, let's get out the penalty guidelines and see mm-hmm. what you're facing. And and you'd see that like, it's a mandatory maximum penalty of like, I don't know, three days on the bricks or five days on mm-hmm. the bricks or something. And, and we'd look at all of the stress that these people are putting themselves through facing three or five days on the bricks. Like rationally, it doesn't make sense. But it falls into that category of fear of the unknown. And, and it, I think it's the same thing when people find themselves addicted or even when they find themselves um, suicidal. The fear of the unknown and what's going to happen to them mm-hmm. prevents them from taking any positive steps. So maybe they want to combine the two and it's much easier for me to just drink myself to sleep every night than it is to face my
0: demons. Yeah, we right. call that catastrophizing. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, worrying yeah. about You know something in the future that hasn't happened and likely will not happen, and even if it does happen, won't happen the way you think it's going to happen. Yeah,
1: and the way that it spirals and ruminates, and Mm -hmm. it's people lay they don't sleep, lay about at night thinking and worrying, and and and, um, and so a couple of things. One is if I mean I'm in the training business, right? Mm -hmm. And 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 so. Of course, I help people when I see them and they need help now. But more than that, I try to train everybody else so that when they see somebody suffering, they know how to how to help them, mm-hmm. right? But then get once they get in to the help, then I think that's where all of the good things like the engagement and the flow come along, right? And that's where they can start to do all of those healthy things. Mm-hmm. Um, but while they're drowning in their sorrows, they, they can't. Mm-hmm. It, it's not like you can do both,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, you know, and, and so um, it is, it is interesting that at the end of the day, a lot of it just comes back to courage, the courage to go from saying, I got this, I can handle it. I can control it to, no, I can't. I could actually use a hand.
0: And to not let it, you know, the sun's going to come up tomorrow. Mm -hmm. You know, it is no matter what you're facing. Um, I, because I was an EAP peer myself, I, I went through a lot of that with other, you know, other agents and and support employees and people would just ruminate over things. I, I have to say that there have been times in my career where I would just ruminate over things that, that you just have no control over that. And you know, there's there's a saying that you know you have to. You know, we talk about the surrender prayer. You know, there's things that you can control, things that you can't control. And the what we have to work on is recognizing the difference between the two, what we can and what we can't can control, and just realizing that that you know there's a certain point in the day where, uh, and I always tell people that I work with that uh, you know you you're taking this personally. It's a personal attack. You know, like let the example you gave, you lost your gun. Okay, it happens. Believe it or not, that actually does happen in the FBI and other agencies. Um, you're not the first person that that's ever happened to. You won't be the last person that that's ever happened to. And at the end of the day, you're likely, unless you've lost a bunch of guns, you're probably not going to get fired. Mm-hmm. Okay? What's the worst? You know, you might get some days off. Three days, five days. Okay, right. five days. All right. But you're not going to lose your job. There's nothing that you can do about that. It's not the end of the world. And, and don't take it so personally. It's business. This happened. You lost your gun. You're gonna days off, move on. you know move on from it. It's not the end of the it's not the end of the world. And you can extrapolate that to a lot of different things in life. Um, very little of what we think is going to happen, what keeps us up at night and we think about and we play these scenarios out, if you think of your own life, all the things that you thought were going to be tragic in your life, if you go back and analyze them, very few of them ended up being near as bad as you thought they were mm-hmm. going to be. Very few of them.
1: Yeah. You know, um, another thing I wanted to mention um, just before we wrap up is um, a little bit about how common um, thoughts of suicide are. Mm -hmm. I, I think people often think that people that think of suicide are somebody else and and they don't want to be, quote unquote, one of those people. But one thing we know for certain is that thoughts of suicide are a normal human condition Mm -hmm. and and in certain communities i mean especially if i throw out like military law enforcement you know the ones i'm familiar with i would kind of say that people are being a little bit disingenuous if they say they've never thought of suicide um it's it's like the 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 science numbers say that at any given time say like in in any given year um 5% of people one out of 20 will consider suicide but sometimes we ask like what does that look like well l- let's look at the FBI for instance there's 36,000 people in the FBI if any given year 5% of them consider suicide that's 1800 people mm. Right. Think about it it's like that. It's significant, yeah. Yeah, and then times that by how many years? I, I mean, it, there's a lot of opportunity out there, and and so clearly, you know, at, nationally, one out of every seventy one hundred people or so kills themselves every year. Okay, but we're saying one out of twenty people has a thought of suicide. And so there's an awful long road between a thought of suicide and and people killing themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, the odds are overwhelming that people that are thinking of suicide are not going to kill themselves, mm-hmm. but some are,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? And and so what I would love to see happen is is you know if enough stigma was removed to say um, like what's happened with. Um, you know, domestic abuse or child abuse over the years, how it it used to be somebody else's business and we don't talk about that. And now anybody would talk about it that we have, you know, nobody keeps it a secret, right? Thoughts of suicide are so normal that kind of like, I want to say like everybody's doing it at one time or another (laughs) that, that um, it, it, if if we got to the point where people would talk about it when it was happening, we could avoid getting down the road as far as that one in 7,000. Yeah, yeah. Um, that it doesn't have to get to the point of somebody actually thinking about pulling the trigger before, you know, we think about getting help. That that it's common enough and and that there's no reason— not to just deal with it when it happens you know we don't mm-hmm. have to let it get farther and farther and farther and farther until we're at the point of actually making attempts um, i mean like i said nobody that i've that i've met wants to die that's they just not want how, to end the pain yeah. yeah it's that first thought of suicide which is hey yeah this is bad in my life and that's bad and the other things bad mm-hmm gosh, maybe it'd be better if I just didn't wake up. Yeah. You know, gosh, man, this could all go away if I just wasn't here. Right. 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 Gosh, they would all be better off if I wasn't here anymore. I'm just a burden. Right. Yeah. Like like that. That's what a thought of suicide sounds like. It's not like a special thing that that you know, is complicated. Mm -hmm. Right. And 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 the one thing that every single person who's ever thought of suicide is, is a person who didn't think of suicide until that moment. Right, (laughs) Right. Right. They're still the same person. And and so the thing is to just recognize, hmm, okay, things have gotten bad enough where I'm starting to think that maybe a solution would be for me to not show up. I should probably start find an alternate solutions right like you know and and of course you can translate that to the world of addiction um kind of like things are bad enough i should probably start looking uh like you you've told me before um when we've talked about clients is People don't have to ride the elevator all the way down. No. <laughs> like they can get off at any floor.
0: No, they don't. And you know? the thing is, is that, and it will close with this, that help is available. Training, the training that you do. And and of it, if it's not the, the organization that Paul is associated with, there are other organizations. There's a suicide hotline that you can get hold of. And I'll, I'll be posting uh, that, that number on, uh, on the page here. And you can find it. You can Google the suicide hotline. But there's all kinds of organizations and help. Uh, Most places where you're employed will have something available, or they at least will have people that can point you in the right direction. You know, we're talking about the FBI here, but if you're a police officer, first responder, or anyone in the community, um, many, many corporations have something available and reach out and start that conversation. So, Paul, if if people want to get hold of you, how would would they do that? Your organization or Uh, you personally or whatever you want to put out? Yeah, let
1: let me just... uh Uh, tell you, tell you this, Mike, and, um, people ask all the time, what can we do to help if they're family members or friends of someone who's thinking of suicide? You know, they'll say questions like, what can we do? We're not mental health clinicians. Mm -hmm. What can we do? We're not psychologists. And, and I'll I'll say a couple of things, but the, the easiest is I can say, get some training, So that you know how to have Mm -hmm. conversations about suicide and you know how to help keep people safe right now. And of course, if I had to say anything else, it would be to get those adverse experiences out of your house (laughs) that I talked about a little bit. Um, When I say children being raised through trauma, such as physical abuse, sexual abuse, domestic violence, um, alcoholism, drug addiction, people going to prison—all of those things that can have lifelong impacts on children. Get those out of your house, and and get some training so you know how to have conversations uh, with people that are thinking of suicide and how to help them get help. Yeah, and um, to to um, um to. Get, are you looking for how to get a hold of me personally?
0: If that's what you want to give out or your organization, um, sure. you know, what do you think um, is best?
1: Well, I, I work for um, Living Works Education, and Living Works is one word. And um, and livingworks.net is the website. And you can find um, various training programs on there. And then if you um, want to get a hold of me directly, it's paul.org. Bertrand, B E R T R A N D, at livingworks.net. That's Paul.Bertrand at livingworks.net.
0: Mm, okay. Well, that's, that's fantastic. And, you know, Paul, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. About this. This is really, really good information. And uh, if you're listening to this, you know, this might be information that is useful to you. I think it's useful to anybody because, again, if, if it's not you that is in this, this condition right now, it's likely that you know someone who is and, and you can be a help and a lifesaver. So, again, folks, this episode has been sponsored by FHE Health. And according to SAMHSA, first responders are 30% more likely to develop behavioral. Co- behavioral health conditions like PTSD. FHE Health specializes in getting first responders better and cleared for duty. So find out more at FHEHealth.com. That's FHEHealth.com. So as I'd always like to say, I don't represent any group, although we're talking about groups here, I don't represent them. I don't represent anyone other than myself. My only purpose in giving this information is to share with you what I've done because it's helped me and maybe it will help you too. So if I've said something or if Paul has said something that doesn't apply to you or you don't agree with, then just discard it. But try to take any information that you can use for yourself and help others as well because that's what we do in recovery. We help ourselves along the way and help to impart the knowledge we've gained to others as well. So with that, please visit our Facebook page which is Recovery is Possible and our website com. Let me know how I'm doing and let me know if uh, there's a topic that you'd like for me to cover because I'd like to hear from you. And take care guys and we will see you next time. Thanks Paul. We'll see you. Thanks very much Mike. (laughs)